Welcome to the Andy Mazur Podcast. I'm Andy, and thanks for being here. Remember, hit that subscribe button if you like what you're hearing, wherever you may be listening across the many different platforms like Spotify, Google, Anchor, and Apple Podcasts. I've also created a YouTube page, so just search Andy Mazur Podcast for video trailers of each week's podcast, and I certainly appreciate you checking us out. The podcast is sponsored locally by Roots Pizza with four convenient Chicago-area locations. There's sure to be a Roots Pizza near you. Stop in for Quad City-style pizza with that sweet malted crust. And don't forget, order the mozzarella sticks. You won't be sorry. They're unforgettable and life-changing. For more information, head to rootspizza.com. Today, we'll talk about Dick Allen, the 1972 American League MVP for the Chicago White Sox. And he is credited with transforming not just the team, but the city of Chicago. Today, we'll welcome John Owens, a co-author of the book Chili Dog MVP, Dick Allen, the 72 White Sox, and a Transforming Chicago. So here we go. It's the Andy Mazur Podcast with John Owens. The Andy Mazur Podcast. So Dick Allen was a great player, uh, arguably the greatest defensive force in baseball between 1964 and 1974. His manager, Chuck Tanner, rested him in the second game of a doubleheader against the Yankees. He had played all, all year. Um, and he was uh, in the clubhouse um, eating a chili dog. Under the pitch. Oh, he freed one. And the ball game is over. Holy cow, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Ricky Allen Pitt hit the three-run homer. And the White Sox beat the Yankees. Unbelievable. I know it happened. But I can hear that scoreboard going on. Allen has faced Lindy McDaniel many times as the long drive deep center, way back in my day, it's ripping, hey, almost into the net, holy cow. And welcome in to another edition of the Andy Mazur Podcast, I'm Andy and John Owens is kind enough to join us here, John, uh, one of the co-authors of Chili Dog MVP, Dick Allen, the 72 White Sox, and a transforming Chicago. First of all, I want to thank you for taking some time here. And uh, why write this book? What, what about Dick Allen was so intriguing to you? Uh, well, I had the uh, good fortune to meet him back in 2012 when the um, uh, White Sox were celebrating the 40th anniversary of that 1972 team. If you remember, they wore the uh, red pinstripes on Sundays. And Dick uh, made a, a rare appearance um, uh, uh, back in Chicago during um, late June to celebrate that team on one Sunday. And I had the good fortune of meeting him. And then my co-author, David Fletcher, knew him very well. And he was the guy who actually sort of arranged for that 1972 reunion um and 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 dick it was was a wonderful person and he was a wonderful player and and uh my my co-author who again knew him very well and is a physician and and, and treated him from time to time uh was with him uh, during his last days in, in 2020 and and after dick's death and 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 the the two disappointing um, attempts, recent attempts to get him into the Hall of Fame, my, my co-author and I felt, you know, it's time to, to really uh, put Dick back on the map because he was so important uh, uh, to the, the White Sox organization at a time when, when, when the team was, was really 
uh, struggling and and uh, in danger of moving. So he really, you know, re regenerated the fan base and 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 brought people back to Comiskey. And we felt that he needed to be celebrated for that. And we we need we needed to remember how important uh, Dick was to this city and to the White Sox organization. Dick kind of seemed uh, to be an enigma uh, of sorts because all the talent in the world, and he could probably do anything he wanted reading your book. I mean, uh, an R&B singer, a basketball player. I mean, he probably could have done anything he wanted to do. It was that misrepresentation, I think, that, that, that kind of set him back a little bit and maybe is keeping him out of the Hall of Fame. Is that something that uh, – is that a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement. Statement. He was, you know, an interesting individual. He grew up in, a, um, in Wampum – Pennsylvania and a, a, a surrounding where it, it, it you know it, back in those days in the 1940s and, and 50s most aspects of American society most 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 institutions were, were segregated but he Dick he grew up in an area Wampum which is uh, just outside of Pittsburgh where he, he it was an interracial uh, atmosphere he grew up with Chuck Tanner for instance his future manager the Tanner family and they competed against each other the Yallen family competed against the Tanner family and they they were they, they, those two families were friends friendly growing up and then he dealt with the culture shock after being um, uh, signed by the, the Philadelphia Phillies. He dealt with, the, you know, a, a lot of issues with that organization. First, they 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 recognized his talents, but they left him open to the, the expansion draft of 1960. Two, um, which was an insult to, to Dick. He had been uh, signed by the Phillies um, uh, in 1960. And then they sent him down to Little Rock, Arkansas to play um, to, 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 to play AAA baseball. He was the, one of the first African-Americans to play in Little Rock. And, and they didn't really prepare him for that. And he, he, he suffered as a result. He had to deal with the uh, um, uh, racist fans and, and uh, just a, a, a racist atmosphere. And he was a sensitive guy. And he had trouble dealing with that. And then moving to the majors in Philadelphia, which is a tough media town, uh, playing out of position at first at third base, where he made a number of errors. That even though he was a, a from the from the start in 1964 when he started uh, his rookie season with the Phillies, he was an offensive phenomenon. He you know he had issues defensively at first at third base before he was eventually moved to first, and and he was he was criticized by the media for his. Uh, sort of uh, sensitive, aloof personality and, and some of his quirks, which included uh, not necessarily taking batting practice. Um, and uh, uh, because and he had a good reason for that. He said, you know, I, I, I can't uh, batting practice doesn't help me because I'm going to see pitches half speed and not full speed like I would uh, during a game. So he didn't take batting practice. But these are things that, that you know, he, he was he was uh, he was definitely an iconoclast and and he was. He was he suffered uh, uh, because of that with the media and with fans and and as a result he it, like you like you you say Andy he 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 became sort of an enigma with both the media and uh, 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 fans especially in Philadelphia and 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 in the long run the fact that he had a difficult relationship with the media specifically on the East Coast that 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 hurt him 
um, both as a player and in as numerous attempts to get him into the Hall of Fame, it hurt him then too. You know, the amazing thing about that story, and I've been around baseball pretty much my entire professional career and I've had a chance to cover some of those enigmas, you know, and it, it, you get close to these people and you think to yourself, this guy's not as bad as everybody said he was. And I watch him, I watch a guy in the clubhouse and I watch how he interacts with his teammates. And he has such a different persona away from all of that, that the media never sees. And it's a, such an unfortunate situation that the media could never get to see how he reacted with his teammates and how he interacted with, uh, with others around the clubhouse because that would have put him in such a different light. And uh, it's just amazing to me how that, how that transpired. That's exactly right, Andy. Yeah, he had a great reputation with teammates. Your old colleague Steve Stone talks on occasion about how funny Dick uh, Dick was, um, and 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 to a man, with the exception of maybe a couple of players like the uh, um, Rick Reichart, his uh, teammate on the nineteen seventy two White Sox, with the exception of people like him and maybe a few others, Frank Thomas, the original Frank Thomas, he uh, got into an argument with him. Uh, uh, Frank Thomas was a, uh, a ball player in the 50s and 60s with the Pirates and Phillies, and he did not get along with Dick. But for the most part, he had great relationships with uh, his his teammates. He wasn't necessarily an outgoing guy, but he was always there for his teammates when he was in the clubhouse. Um, and he was a funny guy, a very funny guy, and he was a helpful guy. Guys like Goose Gossage, he – name check Dick when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2008, calling him the best player he ever saw. Um, and and Goose Gossage credited Dick for, for helping him as a pitcher, you know, encouraging him to do things like throw inside to, to, to batters. Um, so, it, you know, and, and others like Carlos May, you know, credited Dick with, with helping him, you know, with hitting and with, base running dick was a a five two player he could do everything well and and he 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 was helpful with teammates and 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 helping make team his teammates better so he was he was misunderstood by by some in the media but not by his teammates who championed him although i will say the the media in chicago that was probably his his greatest media relationships occurred here in chicago he became friendly with guys like Bob Marcus, who was a longtime writer for the Tribune. So so he did have some decent relationships with the media here in Chicago, which is why he appreciated Chicago probably more than any of the other cities that he played in. So getting into Chicago was uh, was kind of a chore of itself, uh, the, the holdout in spring training. And I'm sure that did not do much to, to dispel some of the things that uh, were kind of preceding him at that point. But as as I read in your book, I mean, obviously the relationship with Chuck Tanner played a huge role in that, and he wanted to get what was his, and I don't think I don't see why that's uh, that, that's such a shock to people. Right. I mean, that was another thing about Dick, and it was something that uh, that uh, also that pl- other players also admired him for is that he knew his self worth. He learned this from his oldest brother Coy, who was his earliest, you know. Um, agent. He had other agents, obviously, after that. But his brother Coy always told him, you know, you know, make sure that 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 you're recognized for your talents uh, uh, when it when when you have to negotiate for a salary. So as a result, Dick would hold out every year, and it, he it was wise of him to do this because he, you know, by 1970 and 71, 
he was uh, one of the top paid players in Major League Baseball. In my 1972, he was, when he signed with the Sox, the top played top paid player in baseball. So, yes, he definitely knew his self-worth. But he did come to Chicago. One reason that he came to Chicago was because of Chuck Tanner. As I, as I mentioned earlier, he um, knew the Tanner family uh, from from uh, early on in, in Wampum. They, they knew each other. And Chuck had been campaigning for 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 Dick from from the start when he when he was hired by the White Sox, along with Roland Heeman uh, from California. Uh, from the California Angel System back in late 1970. They uh, initially, uh, um, the team wanted to engineer a deal where um, uh, Dick was traded, uh, Dick was at St. Louis at the time, and uh, they wanted to engineer a deal where Louis Aparicio would go to the Cardinals for Dick, but the Cardinals turned that down. So there was always a, a push to get from Chuck Tanner to get Dick Allen on the White Sox, and they were able to do that in December of 1971 when they traded another great uh, player who's not in the Hall of Fame, Tommy John, uh, for Dick. Um, and it, it came, he did hold out, and I uh, he held out during a time when uh, baseball was on strike. Um, uh, it was with the first uh, strike of the modern baseball era, um, and, and Dick uh, came back when the players were still on strike. So that was a sort of ironic there. Uh, but it, it was just, uh, it, it was something that was meant to be because of the relationship that Dick had with Chuck Tanner. And as you guys write in the book too, I mean, his mom had a lot to do with getting him back too, because he respected her opinion so much. She's like, hey, go play baseball. That's correct. Yeah, he, he Dick, uh, you know, initially he looked at the White Sox team from 1971 and it was a overachieving team that, that, that didn't quite reach 500 um, with a lot of young players. And Dick was, you know, a, a, a veteran by that time. Uh, he was 30 years old and he had dealt with a lot of, you know, poor uh, Phillies teams after that first team in 1964, a disappointing team that was overtaken by the Cardinals in the last week of the season. That was After that, things went down with the Phillies and he was looking for an organization where he could win. And he didn't really think, uh, the White Sox could win, and it took his mom to tell him, you know, you you Chuck, you've got your friend Chuck Tanner here, you've got to go to the White Sox. And what a time that was for uh, for the White Sox and White Sox fans. It it started bringing people to, to Comiskey Park, as you pointed out, and uh, it it kind of made the the South Side the the baseball mecca of Chicago. Yeah, the, you know the South Side, it, it, as you know well, you know South Side fans and and the South Side well. Um, they, they, it, the, the team had been very successful in the 1950s and 1960s, the famous go-go White Sox, and they consistently outdrew the Cubs during that time. Um, but after 1967, um, in the, the year where, uh, the White Sox, uh, were in the pennant race until the last week of the season, uh, a race that Boston eventually won. They went up against Detroit and Minnesota. They were all bunched together within that last couple of weeks of the season. After that season, things really went down. There was always uh, whispers about the White Sox leaving Chicago at that time. In, in fact, um, owner Art Allen, um, Art Allen Jr., uh, had a handshake deal with Bud Selig in Milwaukee to move the White Sox to Milwaukee in 1969 to um, uh, 
replace the Braves who had left Milwaukee uh, a few years before. And another iconoclast and 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 um, unsung hero of this book, a man named John Allen, who um, eventually bought the team the, the, from his brother Art. Uh, he was a, a minority owner before that. He, you know, he was also instrumental in uh, the resurgence on the South Side because he remained committed to keeping the White Sox in Chicago and in Comiskey Park. He it, unlikely because he grew up, you know, he was a part of a brokerage firm. The a, a, a Allen Company had a brokerage firm on LaSalle Street for years. And uh, Bill Veck, you know, brought originally brought the Allens into the fold when he owned the team back in the late 50s and early 60s. But it was John Allen who said, you know, I want to keep this team in Chicago. I don't want a publicly funded stadium, which is what his brother was pushing for and what, you know, uh, other city officials were pushing for. He said, I want to stay at Comiskey Park. I want to stay in the third largest market in the country. And we're going to bring fans back to Comiskey Park. And, you know, one of the, the ways of doing this was, you know, getting a, uh, a, a uh, marquee star to bring fans back. So he and Roland Heeman uh, and Chuck Tanner were instrumental in getting Dick back to uh, getting Dick to Chicago and bringing fans back to the South Side, which is what he did. And, and, and make no mistake, the Sox were in serious danger of moving back then. Uh, they, 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 the, the bottom dropped out in 1970 when they lost more than 100 games and couldn't draw 500,000 fans. I think it was 495,000 fans that they drew uh, in the 1970 season. So, so it, it, it took, you know, Dick and, you know, uh, 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 people like John Allen and other iconoclasts who we mentioned in the book, people like Harry Carey and, and Nancy Faust. Uh, it took people like that to bring pe uh, the fans back to the South side and Comiskey Park. That's a perfect lead into where I wanted to go next because it's so hard for I'm sure for people to believe that one guy could have such an impact on keeping a franchise together, but it was all the things that were happening as a result of him being there that were happening around him. You know, you mentioned Harry Carey, uh, you mentioned Nancy Faust who comes up with, uh, with the walk-up music that everybody hears to this day. Uh, you know, this young organist comes in there and, and, and figures out a way to, to honor Dick, Dick Hall by playing Jesus Christ Superstar as he steps to the plate. Nancy Faust was and is because she's still active, uh, just a, a brilliant person, a, a brilliant musician who started with the White Sox in 1970. She was, I believe she was 24, 25 years old, but she came from a musical background. Her mom was a well-known performer. She performed for the uh, WLS uh, National Barn Dance for years. So she was a known commodity here in Chicago. And and Nancy had uh, always had taken the keyboards early and had played at different events, including events for the Allen family, a wealthy, as I mentioned, a wealthy family out of Wilmette. And that sort of uh, uh, brought her to the attention of the White Sox. Um, so she was hired in the 1970 season, that season when they didn't draw 500,000 fans. And she was out originally in the uh, um, in the center field bleachers of Old Comiskey, where no one was sitting, and she got a chance to, you know, 
experiment while she was on the job. There was a guy who was with the White Sox in the 60s, a guy named Shea Torrent, an organist who eventually moved on to California. And he was a, a really sharp organist. Um, and, and Nancy had listened to him, but she took it to another level by, as you, as you mentioned, you know, walk-up music. She started that early on, back in 1970, doing little themes, musical themes for players, uh, both for the White Sox and opposing teams uh when when they walked up to the plate um tunes that 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 were identifiable with the player that were identifiable with their name with something they did in the news recently um and then she uh started commenting on the game musically and this was something that was not you know totally new for major league baseball yeah you, you, you had organists like shea torrent and the dodgers brooklyn dodgers had gladys george but there was no one who was, you know, making these witty comments on the game like Nancy was. And it was immediately noticed. It was noticed by another man who had just started with the White Sox, Harry Carey, who started um, after a legendary career in St. Louis. Uh, he, he was forced out of St. Louis for controversial reasons um, and then moved to Oakland for a year. Didn't get along with Charlie Finley. Jack Brickhouse, the uh, legendary broadcaster for the Chicago Cubs and White Sox, uh, told Harry, you know, there's this opening in uh, Chicago. Uh, why don't you come to Chicago? The only problem was WMAQ had dropped them from, uh, dropped the White Sox uh, from their uh, radio station after 1970. So uh, Harry was forced to be on a radio and sort of a loose amalgamation of suburban radio stations in LaGrange and Evanston and Joliet. Um, and yet he was able to build a fan base in 1971, build back the fan base with his dynamic broadcasting. Everybody knows Harry's dynamic style. <laughs> and, and, and while he was broadcasting in 1971, Harry made a connection immediately with Nancy Faust. He noticed what she was doing um uh with these little musical cues and 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 he would he would promote that on the air and he would say hey listen to what the organist is doing she really gets it and they soon connected and they developed their own um 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 traditions for instance uh take me out to the ball game which was uh harry and nancy together you know uh, pushed by bill veck later on all right let's do it again Better this time. All right, Nancy. Let me hear you. Take me out to the You know, it was, it, the, the, the combination of these these um, uh, people for providing stadium stadium entertainment and and pushing the Sox back into the mainstream and the media, who also really helped energize the team in the early seventies. 
and again, it's the influence uh, of Dick Allen that kind of brings it all to the to the forefront and, and kind of gives it uh, credibility and, and notoriety. And it's amazing, as you as you pointed out too, with uh, with Nancy Faust. I think probably being as young as she was at that time and being in tune to all the music that was going on at the time and trying to introduce that into a ballpark. I mean, we hear it now. I mean, now it's just all, it's all DJs and it's all recorded music rather than the actual organ music. But that was that was her back in the day. Right. Unfortunately, that stadium, you know, that all the DJs and and the uh, multimedia is what kind of forced her out of uh, 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 her position with the White Sox back in 2010. But, yeah, I mean, she was a one man musical um, phenomenon doing all this stuff back in 1970, 71, 72. So way ahead of her time. And she was a very young woman. But I mean. Although, I mean, she's not the greatest at reading music. She's uh, just a, a musical genius because of the number of songs that um, that she retains and was able to retain in her head. And the ability to call back these these little musical cues for each individual player, both on, you know, the White Sox and, and on opposing teams. We'll have more of our conversation with John Owens, author and journalist, in just a moment. The Andy Mazur Podcast is sponsored by Roots Pizza, part of the 5050 Group, with four locations throughout the city of Chicago, South Loop, Old Town, Lincoln Square, and the flagship restaurant in West Town. Roots features quad city-style pizza with the ingredients on top of the cheese, and it's cut into strips. The crust is malted for that hint of sweetness with every bite. Don't forget to order the mozzarella sticks. They are simply life-changing. Roots is open for dine-in and carry-out. For the restaurant location near you, head to rootspizza.com or download their app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Roots Pizza, take it from me. It's so good. The Andy Mazer Podcast. Now, back to Andy. We're talking about the 1972, which was not too far removed here in the city from the Democratic National Convention in 68 and all the unrest that happened there. And, you know, the 70s were a tumultuous time, not only here in Chicago, but also around the country as well. And I know this is a big part of your book as well. It's not just Dick Allen, the baseball player. It's about Dick Allen and what he meant to the transformation of this city, right? That's correct. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there was, you know, civil unrest and change throughout the nation. And it, it was definitely prevalent in Chicago and on the south side where Comiskey Park was located and where Guaranteed Rate Field is located today. Um, so we look at um, the, the state of the south side and the city at that time. It, it was, as you mentioned, a few years after the 1968 Democratic Convention, uh, where there was a, a political unrest uh, uh, on the streets uh, on Michigan Avenue. And then you look at all the civil unrest that was going on in Chicago, uh, um, racially motivated civil unrest uh, um, that was happening everywhere. Um, the, after Martin Luther King was uh, assassinated in April, there were riots in the all the urban areas, including Chicago, primarily on the west side, a little bit on the south side. So th- there was a, th- you had you had this backdrop of uh, of upheaval and change in 1970 and 1971 and 1972. And that, that, that definitely affected, you know, the White Sox. It, 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 it probably affected their attendance because, as we know, the, the White Sox are located on the south side. They, they were sort of a 
a boundary, a boundary um, in the same way that the Dan Ryan Expressway is sort of a boundary where you have a predominantly um, uh, African-American population to the east of the ballpark, and you have a primarily white ethnic um, population to the west. So uh, the, 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 the upheaval and, 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 and racial unrest was immediately noticeable. Some people attributed that for the, the downgrade in attendance at Comiskey Park in 68 and 69 and 70, although they, they, there were <clears throat> definitely other factors involved. And I don't think that was the major reason for the attendance drop. Um, so, so this was, this was something that, that, that Chicago was dealing with in 70 and 71. You had Mayor Richard J. Daley, who was beginning his 17th year, um, as the mayor of Chicago, uh, a longtime White Sox fan, um, a, a, um, not necessarily a season ticket holder every year, but he made many of the games and as Bill, Bill Vec, um, said he was the only mayor I ever met who never asked for any comps or free tickets. He believed in, uh, you know, uh, paying for his family when he entered into the ballpark and he loved the White Sox. So he, he was the, uh, the all, all powerful, uh, last of the all powerful big city mayors, but he was, his power was dwindling. In 1972, you had uh, a, a lot of um, resistance, both from people who were, sort of in his uh in his uh, uh universe like ed burke and and ed verdoliak alderman who basically were a part of daly's camp but thought that he was getting older and that that he needed some challenges and you you had uh, uh, other people like uh bill singer the alderman who grew up in the south shore and later became 43rd ward alderman um a, a young activist named jesse jackson who had moved here um, a few years before uh, the SCLC, um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, had him, uh, established an organization here. And he became a renegade from the SCLC and sort of branched off and created his own organization, Operation Push. And he was he and Singer were uh, pushing uh, 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 daily and, and his uh, delegates and, 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 and pushing for a more uh, diverse group group of delegates who would represent the Democratic Party in Illinois in the 1972 convention. So that's a story that was going on throughout how how uh, the the uh, sort of the younger, more diverse group of politicians here in Chicago were, were finally were, were pushing uh, 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 the uh, entrenched um, political um, uh, uh, machine led by Daley um, and would eventually not force him out, but give him more trouble than he ever had politically. So you had a lot of political infighting during 1972. You had uh, Daily son, Richard M. He's starting his political career at the time. So there, there was a lot of political drama. And then there was drama in the neighborhoods um, not far from Comiskey, Comiskey Park. You're seeing a lot of change going on, racial change. Um, uh, uh, African-Americans had been limited due to the restrictive racial covenants to a specific area on the South side called the Black Belt. Uh, but by 1968, um, due to um, the Open Housing Act, the Federal Open Housing Act and other um, uh, uh, things, Black families were starting to move into previously all white neighborhoods like 
Gage Park and um, West Inglewood and other areas like that. And that was creating a lot of tension. We cover in um, uh, Chili Dog MVP uh, a near riot that took place at uh, Gage Park High School, which is just a mile from Comiskey due to the fact that you've had you know, black students uh, uh, starting to populate the school, uh, bringing about resentment from uh, the longtime white ethnics who uh, attended that school. So there was a lot of strife um, and a lot of change going on in Chicago when Dick Allen joined the White Sox in 1972. You know, it all does come back down to sports. And what always interests me is the way that even people that don't really follow it every day, say baseball, basketball, football, whatever. Uh, I, I always go back to the 1980 Olympic hockey team as a unifier. And I always felt that if a, if a team in your city is doing really well and everybody kind of jumps on the bandwagon, and forget about the fact that they're not maybe not uh, diehard fans, who cares? I mean, everybody's kind of uh, in it together. It just seems like sports is that great unifier. And that had something to do with that 72 season as well. That's exactly right. I mean, you, you had all this these issues uh, uh, near the ballpark. But due to Dick Allen and due to other factors like Harry Carey and Nancy Faust, the, the, the fan base was really re-energized in 1972. Um, they drew a million fans for the first time since 1965, over a million fans. And that fan base was probably the most diverse fan base in the city and one of the most diverse fan bases in the country. Dick Allen was shocked when he came to Chicago and saw the, the mix of um, Latino and African-American and white fans who would come to Comiskey Park. And, uh, you know, th this was uh, something that he specifically referenced. He, he said, yeah, I've never seen anything like this in, the, in any of the cities that I played before in Philadelphia, Los Angeles, St. Louis. This is a different fan base. And it was, you know, when White Sox fans have a winner to celebrate, they definitely will support their team and that was the case in 1972 it was it was a um a, a specifically dick was a must-see event you know you didn't want to miss what he did at the plate when he came up so he was he was the main energizing factor behind a, a fan base that would come back after um a number of losing seasons and you mentioned uh dick allen and the, the type of talent that he was a, a five tool type of player. I'm trying to think if there's anybody of today's ilk that uh, could even rival some of the things that Dick Allen was able to do, not just with a bat, but with his legs in the field. I mean, he was a heady, heady base runner and just a, just a great baseball guy. He was beyond. Yeah. yeah he, he was beyond compare. He, he, you know, he wasn't necessarily a base stealer, but he knew how to run the bases, how to cut the bases. And, and that's something that other teammates would, would, would study. I can't think of anybody quite like him either, Andy. Um, and then when you throw into the mix, his, his charismatic nature, even though he was a quiet guy, he was someone when he was in a room, you knew he was in a room. He was an extremely stylish dresser. Um, and he, you know, he had a sense of authority. He was a, you know, normal size guy. He was only like 5'11", but he was chiseled. He was, he had, he, in, 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 day, in the days when, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, 
um, weight training and and other you know health health related factors uh, health uh, you know conditioning coaches and and people like that he was an incredible specimen an incredible physical specimen um so he was he was really a, a unique guy i can't think of anybody who really matches him today and you know he was um it, it was the age of the pitcher but he was uh, you know from 64 to 74 there was no one better maybe henry aaron from 64 to 74 his ops was 940 only aaron's 941 ops was higher during that span um he he oh, his slugging percentage 554 from 64 to 74 second only to hank aaron's 561 um slugging percentage so he was he was the perhaps the most dynamic offensive player of his time again in an age when you know pitchers dominated especially in the 60s when pitchers dominated so he's really just a unique character in the game you mentioned too about the authoritative stance and just the, the kind of uh, you know you look at him and you revere him just because of what he's been able to do on the field you know there's a lot of guys that probably would take that and, and keep it to themselves and just you know go about their own business if someone wanted to ask you a question they could be a little grizzled about it but and we, we kind of touched on it, too, with, with Goose Gossage, but also reading in your book, you know, Dusty Baker, another guy that, uh, as a young player, really really leaned into to Dick Allen, and uh, Dick Allen saw that this was a kid that was not just happy to be in the big leagues. He wanted to work, and he wanted to be better, and and he really helped him. Right. I mean, you, you, heard, you hear that a lot from teammates, teammates on, uh, on the White Sox, on the 72 White Sox, especially Carlos May would um would would meet with dick after games at you know a local tavern or at dick's uh hotel room when he lived in the southwest suburbs he lived uh, uh at least i believe in the 1972 season he lived in a hotel in the suburbs and then he moved to a uh a townhouse in the suburbs with his with his brother hank who joined him on the team later in 72 but his his hotel room or his townhouse was was always open for players who wanted to 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 visit him and have a few drinks and talk about the game after the game. So he was he was definitely a mentor to a to a lot of players, specifically his his own teammates. Okay, I'm leading up to the chili dog uh, incident. I want to get to that in a second. I don't want to forget about it because obviously that's the the title of your book, and it, it just had an anniversary of a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that's right. We mentioned you know that he moved around and. Philadelphia was kind of a tough town for him. They, when he was called Richie, uh, Richie Ashburn was also, you know, was there before. And that, that's a tough, you know, that's a tough thing to live up to for anybody, uh, let alone have that name. It was interesting, too, in your book the, about how when he went to Los Angeles, how a lot of players go to Los Angeles because they love the scene in L.A. He was quite the opposite, wasn't he? Right. Well, yeah, the Dodgers was you know, for for an African-American player, especially back then, going to the Dodgers was the ultimate experience, you know, because that's where Jackie Robinson debuted. Um, they always had competitive teams. Dick was excited about going to L.A., but he couldn't deal with the relatively conservative culture, especially the culture led by by Walter Alston. He, he never really developed a connection with all, Walter Alston, and he never really developed a connection with his teammates. And and as a result, he was traded after only one year. And then and, uh, he was one year with the Dodgers after uh, one year with the St. Louis Cardinals. 
another great team, which you think he would have enjoyed being a part of. And he did enjoy being a part of the Cardinals. The Cardinals, though, probably the, the Cardinals weren't too thrilled with his unique uh, individualist approach to the game. So, you know, he, he had, a, he, he, in, a, in a way, the, the White Sox were probably the best team to deal with him at the time because you had a young, a young front office led by a, a very young Roland Heeman uh, underneath Stu Holcomb. And then you had a young manager who knew Dick um, knew Dick very well. So I don't think there would be another organization at that time who would have been as welcoming as the White Sox. That trade uh, from Philadelphia to St. Louis kind of uh, with, with involving Dick Allen actually indirectly led to a whole lot of stuff with, with Kurt Flood and uh, challenging the reserve clause because he didn't want to report to Philadelphia. And it, it's weird that he became part of that uh, a little bit unknowingly. Weird and and ironic um, because Marvin Miller was also, you know, who uh, who represented Kurt Flood in uh, his attempt to break the restrictive um, system that would basically bind one player with one team. Uh, Marvin Miller also respected Dick Allen for his his unique uh, ability to to um, hold out for what he felt he was worth. So it is ironic that, that Dick would end up being traded for Kurt Flood, who refused to report to the Phillies because of the, he didn't want to play there. He had a, he had business interest already in St. Louis, Kurt Flood did. And he knew about Dick's issues with Philadelphia fans and media. Um, Philadelphia was seen as sort of a graveyard at that time by players. So he didn't want to report to Philadelphia. So yeah, it, it, it's very ironic that 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 Kurt Flood was the guy who ended up being traded for Dick, and Kurt Flood wouldn't report to the Phillies eventually. Uh, one more before we get to the uh, to the the coup de gras. Uh, the uh, I think it was Oakland. Was it Oakland where he wore his the city that he was born in uh, on the back of his jersey, Wampum, instead of his name? That's that's correct, Wampum. We Wampum sixty, which was the year he was he was signed by the Phillies. Um, yeah, it was it was meant to specifically be a, a tribute to where he grew up and, and his tribute to his roots. And Charlie Finley, to his credit, let him do this, although Charlie Finley would eventually be the guy who would pretty much drive him out of baseball. He had an unsuccessful 1977 season with the A's and ironically, he would end his career with the A's here in Chicago at Comiskey Park when he. Uh, basically uh, refused to enter in a, a game um, and instead uh, uh, went to the showers and he was caught by Charlie Finley during the game in the showers. Charlie Finley, of course, is was based in Chicago and had an insurance office in Chicago and, and uh, Charlie Finley proceeded to uh, suspend Dick and, and fine him without pay. And Dick said, that's it. That's it. I'm, through with baseball, through with playing for Oakland, at least. Well, the uh, the clubhouse kind of leads us right into uh, the uh, the title of the book and the Chili Dog MVP, and that that's such a great story. It was was it June fourth of nineteen seventy two, a doubleheader against the Yankees. He played in Game One, but did not play in Game Two. Correct? I'll let you take it from there. Right, June fourth, nineteen seventy two. So the White Sox at that time they were in the AL West. Um, they were in the AL West with a lot of West Coast teams, and their primary, their primary rival that year was the D 
dominant, beginning their dominant run, uh, the Oakland A's. The Oakland A's led by Reggie Jackson and Joe Rudy and Sal Bando and Catfish Hunter and, and Vita Blue. But the underdog White Sox behind Dick Allen were competing with uh, Oakland for the division lead. On June 4th, 1972, they were playing a doubleheader against the all for 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 years, for decades, the most hated rival of the White Sox, the New York Yankees. And um, the Yankees were sort of down in the AL East at this time, but they were still, you know, a name, a recognized name. And, and as a result, and as a result of that day, and as a result of the excitement generated by the team, over 51,000 fans came to um, Comiskey Park that day. It was one of the largest baseball attendances to that time and, and to this day uh, in Chicago. I, I'm, I'm not sure what was larger than I think I think there were uh, two or three more games that were uh, you had larger attendances anyway it's bat day 51,000 fans at uh, Comiskey Park uh, Dick played in the first game which the White Sox won um, and he had played in every game that year and was due for a um, rest so Chuck Tanner kept him out of game two much to the chagrin of owner John Allen, who was at uh, Comiskey Park that day and immediately ran down and said, uh, you know, why are you uh, resting our, our our meal ticket, Dick, Dick Allen? And uh, Chuck said, you know, we, we need to give him a rest. Um, he's played every game this year. He's beat. He's carrying the team. So Dick uh, was in the clubhouse, first in the Whirlpool, where he was um, uh, relaxing. And then after a stint in the Whirlpool, he um, sat at his locker and was uh, preparing and then eating a chili dog that was uh, uh, prepared by um, one of the clubhouse attendants. Um, he's in the middle of a chili dog, uh, eating that chili dog while the Sox were losing to the Yankees four to two. Um, in the top of the ninth, um, Chuck Tanner had his bat boy, Rory Clark, fine Dick, who was still, you know, chowing down on a, a, a chili dog created by the clubhouse, uh, made by the clubhouse attendant. Rory Clark says, uh, Chuck wants you to pinch hit. Um, so you have to get out now. So Dick rushed. Uh, he had his jersey on. He had dribbled. Uh, the legend has it. He dribbled some chili dog juice on his um, on his jersey, ran out um, to uh, uh, pinch it with uh, two men on a man on first, a man on second, uh, the white Sox down four to two and the, um, Yankees ACE reliever Sparky Lyle on the mound. Um, immediately when, when, uh, Sparky came out to the mound and, 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 and Dick Allen was on the on deck circle, uh, uh, an old teammate of Sparky Lyle's Mike Andrews, who was playing at second, or who was who was on set who was on second um told sparky lyle you're in tough such a you're in tough <laughs> i uh, doo -doo. <laughs> uh and uh so sparky lyle delivered a couple of pitches to dick and the third pitch dick proceeded to hit a line drive rocket into the um left field stands and won the game for the white sox five to four and the the 51 the, the remainder of the 51,000 fans there just exploded it was a, 
uh, a, a sound that, um, that that hadn't been heard in Comiskey before. Even though it was a, a half of the crowd, it was like it was a, a incredible roar, like an explosion. And it, it sort of signified, you know, how special Dick's season was. How he could, you know, he uh, wasn't prepared to be in this game, and um, he was he was relaxing uh, in the whirlpool and in the clubhouse. Uh, and 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 just change the momentum instantly once he was called on to pinch it. It was it was one of the it was probably the the high point of the season for the White Sox, who would compete against the A's for the rest of the year, um, um, reaching first place in August for a bit. But the A's juggernaut eventually was a little bit too much for the for the White Sox, who had also suffered because they lost their next best power hitter, Bill Melton, to injury in June. If they had had him for that entire season, who knows what would have happened. But the the the, the Chili Dog game of June 4th was just a, a, a great symbol for a um, for a fantastic season. And it was the, the event that we lead the book off with because it was such a, a significant moment in that 1972 season. You know, in doing some research, uh, you know, for for our chat here, I, I came upon the the Phil Rizzuto audio of that home run call on WABC in New York, and it he was absolutely incredible. Oh, he screamed one, and the ball game is over. Holy cow! I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Ricky Allen picks hits a three-run homer, and the White Sox. It's a classic call, um, and I'm glad we have that representing that game. I wish we had the Harry call as well, but haven't been able to find that. But that Phil Rizzuto call where he says, oh, I, I know it happened because I can hear the scoreboard booming. It's it's just classic. <laughs> he dropped That's a couple Rizzuto of and he dropped a couple of unbelievables. <laughs> uh-huh. Right, right, right. Uh, John, before we let you let you go here, um, what is it uh, about Dick's legend that you learned in writing this book? Anything that you didn't know about him before? Uh, it, uh, just the the fact that he had, I mean, he really had difficult a difficult time, especially during his time in 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 Philadelphia. Um, he, I, I, I believe, you know, just based on the. The, the accounts, the, the newspaper and magazine accounts from 68 and 69, I think he, he kind of had a, a nervous breakdown in those last few years in Philadelphia. The, the pressure just got to him, and then he injured his hand. He pushed it while well, he was pushing his car up a hill in Philly near his house. He uh, uh, um, pushed his hand through a um, headlight and, and, and cut up his hand, cut up the tendons in his right hand and it affected him for the rest of his career but it really affected him at that time and he ended up you know going AWOL on the Phillies at one point and just taking a, a um, drive cross-country drive where he was you know he he mentions this himself in his autobiography talks about you know how he just doesn't remember much from that era because he was you know drinking so much so I mean that that's something that I didn't know about Dick that that the the, the problems the real serious emotional and mental toll that 
that that uh, he he was dealing with during his last few years in Philadelphia. And the other thing that 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 really came to that that really that, that that was really noticeable to me is how appreciative he was of his time here in Chicago. It didn't, didn't end well. And then it basically with him retiring because of all his health issues. And he felt that he was just carrying the team in 1974 and couldn't push it over the edge, but he loved his time here in Chicago. And it, he mentioned, he, he, he tried to get back to Chicago either with the Cubs or the White Sox after his uh, disappointing stint with Oakland. Um, the lobbying local writers to get back uh, somewhere on the north side or on the south side. He loved his his time here in Chicago, and I I believe, and he's told his his family immediate family. And he told my co-author that if he ever got into the Hall of Fame, he would really seriously consider going in as a white as a White Sox because he really loved his time here in Chicago, and this was the this was the city. And that was the period where he felt most appreciated as a player. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Where can people uh, get the book? Uh, give us some uh, some details or a website. Well, ChiliDogMVP.com, www.ChiliDogMVP.com. That's the uh, main uh, website where you can buy a hardcover version of the book. And then also on Amazon, you can get a hardcover version or a uh, Kindle version of the book. Um, so just uh, look for it on Amazon or better yet, go to www.chilidogmvp.com and you can buy the book there, the hard copy version of the book well, great. on the website. John, uh, I really appreciate it. It's been a, a great chat. I mean, time goes just flies by when, when I'm talking baseball with somebody and I really appreciate you, John, you just checking in with us. Same here. Same here, Andy. It's great to talk to you. A big thanks to John Owens for joining me today on the podcast. You can check out the book Chili Dog MVP, Dick Allen, the 72 White Sox, and a Transforming Chicago. You can order the book on Amazon or at ChiliDogMVP.com. I'll be back to wrap things up in just a moment. The Andy Mazur Podcast is sponsored by Roots Pizza, part of the 5050 Group, with four locations throughout the city of Chicago, South Loop, Old Town, Lincoln Square, and the flagship restaurant in West Town. Roots features Quad City-style pizza with the ingredients on top of the cheese, and it's cut into strips. The crust is malted for that hint of sweetness with every bite. Don't forget to order the mozzarella sticks. They are simply life-changing. Roots is open for dine-in and carry-out. For the restaurant location near you, head to rootspizza.com or download their app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Roots Pizza, take it from me. It's so good. The Andy Mazur Podcast. Now, here's Andy. That's going to do it for this edition of the Andy Mazur Podcast, sponsored by Roots Pizza. Head to rootspizza.com for more information. Also, please hit that subscribe button wherever you're hearing this podcast so I know you're out there and enjoying what you're hearing. If you want to get in touch, head to our Facebook page for the Andy Mazur Podcast, and you can leave a comment right there. Also, we're on YouTube. Don't forget, clips and highlights of each podcast. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the big urn, Ernie Scatton, the voice man, for his help as always. And again, thanks to author John Owens for joining me. Don't forget, you can get his book on Amazon or at ChiliDogMVP.com. Mostly, thanks to you for listening. And until next time, it's Andy Mazur saying, play nice, kids. Take care. 
Andy Major. Hi, pal. <laughs>